0: Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be back here with you this morning, high school. I trust your summer is going well. We're going to dive back into our summer series, uh, The Essentials. And this morning we'll be covering evangelism. Um, I'd ask that you have your Bibles ready. Uh, We're not going to be looking at any one particular passage for too long this morning, but we'll be looking at uh, Uh, many different passages. So have your Bibles ready. In fact, it's always a little scary when you do a a topic sermon because you don't really have left and right limits and you really kind of have to focus uh, what you're going to say. And so why don't we go to the Lord and just ask Him to bless our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank You for the privilege it is to open Your Word and to preach and teach Your Word. We ask that You would use it this morning, that You would take what is from You and You would plant it into our minds and our hearts that we could use it and apply it in our lives. And what is not from you, Lord, we ask that you would uh, cause the fall away and that uh, we would not lead anyone astray, Lord. We ask uh, that your spirit would be in this sermon and that you would use it for the edification of your saints and even the salvation of those who do not know you. pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I'm sure you all are enjoying all the memories that you have already from summer camp. Um, Of course, you had the video and... All those memories that brought back all, all the fun and excitement you had there. And how many of you enjoyed the blob this year? Man, not that many. Is that, because, is that because you all did it last year and you were like, it's one and done. I don't need to do it again. Is that what it is? Or are I mean, how many did it last year but didn't do it this year? Okay, a decent amount. So, I mean, maybe you just don't want to do it. You're just like, no, I don't feel like jumping off that creaky wooden platform. Well, as I was thinking about evangelism, I was thinking, you know, Evangelism is a lot like getting up on that wooden platform. You know, like it doesn't matter how many times I did it. Every time I got up there to go jump off, I got nervous and I had butterflies in my stomach. And if you've ever you know, jumped off a high diving board or jumped out of airplanes or jumped off a cliff into a lake or something along those lines, right? you, you know that feeling. You get those butterflies in your stomach. You get nervous. Right? And why, why is it that we get nervous? It's because we have to put our trust and confidence in that thing, whether it's a The blob, whether it's the the water that's going to catch us, whether it's a parachute, right? We put our faith and trust in that because that we don't go splat. And evangelism, the reason that we're often nervous and we have butterflies is not so much because we're putting our faith and trust in something else, but because we're too worried about what we're saying, what we look like. We're putting too much faith and trust in ourselves and not in God and in His Word. And so this morning... Um, my main goal as we talk through the theology of evangelism, that's your title for this morning, the theology of evangelism, um, is that you would walk away with confidence in the gospel and confidence in God's word. And we're going to work this morning through three headings. I'll give them to you up front so you kind of have a direction where we're going, but then I'll reiterate them as we work through this sermon. The first one is uh, just the definition of evangelism. Then we'll look at the command to evangelize And then we will look at the message of evangelism and the technique of evangelism. That will all be under one point. So your first point this morning is the definition of evangelism. The definition of evangelism. Now if you look the word evangelize or evangelism up in a Bible dictionary, you'll find that it's actually the same word used for gospel. It's the same Greek word used for gospel or good news. It's the Greek word euangelion. And before Christ came into the world, that Greek word was used of all news. Um, if an if a ambassador of the king came into your town or your village, he might proclaim good news that uh, the king's son had been born, the heir to the throne had been born. Or uh, there's good news, we've, we've won the war uh, or a particular battle and we're, we're spreading that news. It can also be used as unofficial pieces of good news, kind of just you know, common good news. If you were a teenage boy in that day, you might, you might say to your friend, I have Gellion this morning. I finally made enough money to buy that new car. Of course, you wouldn't be talking about a car. Maybe you'd you know, buy that new donkey or whatever. And if none of, the girls, none of the girls here would do this, but you might go to your friend and say, I have euangelion. That boy that I like, he finally got the courage to talk to me. But I know none of you would do that. But, and also, hopefully, it's not the guy that bought the donkey, you know, you're not, you're, not, you're not worried about attracting the guy just because he has that nice donkey. You're worried because, or you like him because he, uh, he has the fear of the Lord. So, but you get my point, right? This word could be used uh, for any good news. And it wasn't until Christ came into the world and then ascended on high that the word was used as a technical term for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus Christ. And it was no longer used so much in the sense of just general good news. And that's exactly how we find it used in the New Testament. Both, it's used both in a noun form and in a verb form. Most often in its noun form, it's used simply to describe the message right, of the good news. You know this. Romans 1.16 says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel noun. Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed of the message about Jesus Christ. It can also be used as a noun to describe the person in Acts 21.8 or the person that evangelizes or, sh- or shares the good news. In Acts 21.8 uh, Luke and Paul say on the next day we left and came to Caesarea entering the house of Philip, the evangelist. In that case it's just, it's the same word. It's the word gospel except it's used to describe the person who declares that message, who proclaims that message. It's also used that way in Ephesians 4:11 and 12 talking about um, the gift that God has given to the church, that is the evangelists alongside the, the pastors and the teachers, and, and for the foundation of the church, uh, the apostles and the prophets. And then another on time, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, to do the work of an evangelist. All those cases, it's just the word gospel used to describe either the message or the person who proclaims the good news. It's also used as a verb. Right before Romans 1.16, Romans 1.15, Paul says, I am eager to preach to you who are in Rome the gospel. I'm e- eager to preach the gospel. The word preach here is actually supplied in our English text. It's just the word gospel in its verb form. And it's implied that Paul is going to preach, make that message known. It's, it's not a message if it's not being made known. So, if, if we put all of this together, if we put the, the noun and the verb and our little word study together, what, what do we find? We, we come up with a definition. Here's your definition. I'll give you two definitions this morning. This one's a little longer, and then I'll give you a shorter one. We find that evangelize, to evangelize is to preach the good news or proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ by some form of communication. It's that simple to preach the good news or proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ by some form of communication. And the evangelist is simply the one who does that, who proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. G.I. Packer defines evangelism this way. He says, according to the New Testament, evangelism is just preaching the gospel. It is a work of communication in which Christians make themselves mouthpieces for God's message of mercy to sinners." Jay Packer really is saying nothing more than what we just discovered in our little word study. study. And perhaps you're saying, you know, I mean, we, we know what evangelism means. Why did you have to go through that, that word study to, to, to show us what evangelism is? Do, 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 we, do we really need a word study to show us? And, per, and perhaps not. Perhaps, you know, you're Bible scholars and, and you already knew all of that. But it's just to show you the simplicity of evangelism. That all it is is communing, communicating the, the, the truths of God's word and the truth of the gospel. Whether you're doing that uh, with your mouth, whether you're doing it with a text message or a phone call, maybe you're writing a letter, all of these things are, are forms of communication in order to get that message out there. And it's important that we, we understand the simplicity because oftentimes we'll, we'll overcomplicate it. Right? We, we think, well, I don't really know what that person believes Um, So can I really share the gospel with him? Or we we think, well, I mean, what what if I run into a a Muslim or a a Mormon? I mean, I don't know anything about the Quran. I don't know anything about the the Book of Mormon. I need to study those things in order that I could evangelize and talk to those people. But you don't need to. You have the message. You have the gospel, and you need to proclaim it to them. It's it's not wrong to study those things. It's not not wrong to be informed, to, to be able to relate to them a little bit. but but i mean let's be honest we're all sinners we're all made in the image of god you can relate to them without studying what they believe and you can get to know what they believe as you proclaim the gospel to them so don't let that be an excuse or, or a stumbling block to the simplicity of evangelism because that's what the evangelism does or the evangelist does he knows the gospel and he proclaims the gospel Now, before we move on to the command to evangelize, I I said I was going to give you a simpler definition, and I really have no other purpose of sharing this definition besides the fact that I really like it, and I think it's thought-provoking. Charles Spurgeon says, Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. Evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. Just just think about that. Let that marinate for a second. I mean, if you saw somebody who was starving and it was in your power to feed them and and keep them from dying. And I'm not not talking about all the panhandlers everywhere that when you give them food, they look at you cross-eyed like, why are you giving me this food? I just want your money. We're talking about people that are actually starving. You would do whatever's in your power to feed them. And yet there's spiritually dead people all around us. And we don't do what we're called to do. We don't share with them the bread of life. Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And yet more often than not, more, well, at least more often than we'd like to admit, I would say, we, we hold on to that bread. We don't share it. It goes stale in our, in our spiritual cupboards, and, and we don't declare it to other people. Don't allow that to be you. Next we come to the command to evangelize. The command to evangelize. Your second point this morning. And really, I mean, this is the impetus behind why we we don't just hold on to that bread. Why we don't just keep Jesus all for ourselves and, and, and not tell other people about him. Turn with me to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. And I mean, you know where I'm going with this. What's found in Matthew 28? Who can tell me? The end of Matthew 28. The Great Commission, that's correct, right? And some of you even have it memorized, and that's good, as you should. But in this text, Jesus gives the command to his disciples for all generations to evangelize. Jesus, this is right after Jesus' resurrection, and he had told his disciples to meet him on a particular mountain, and they go there and meet him. And this is what he says to them in verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I, I, I'm not going to spend too much time here. Obviously, we could, we could preach a whole sermon from this text, but I, I just want to make a few observations that will help us uh, understand evangelism, evangelism and give us some, some insight into this command. First, I want you to notice that Jesus's command is holistic. He has a holistic approach to evangelism. Jesus's command is holistic. He doesn't, go, he doesn't tell his followers to, to preach the gospel, does he? No, he tells them to make disciples. But in order to make disciples, I mean, what does that necessitate? It necessitates that we preach the gospel, that we proclaim the good news. And, I mean, if somebody's going to get baptized, what does that necessitate? It necessitates that they've heard the gospel, that they understand the gospel, and that it has changed their lives, and that's a representation of what happens. They've turned from their sin, they've put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, They've died to sin and they've raised to new life. They're a new creation in Jesus Christ. But they can't do that unless somebody proclaims the gospel to them until they understand the gospel. And so we are the ones who need to do so. In Romans, you don't have to turn there, just listen. Paul says in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. In Romans 10, 14, a few verses earlier, he says, how then will they call on him? in whom they have not believed, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And obviously I was talking earlier that it, it, it's all forms of communication, right? You can share the gospel in any form of communication as long as it's, you're putting it out there, right? I mean, hearing here, right, is just Paul's way of saying that it needs to be proclaimed. No one has ever become a true disciple of Jesus without first hearing the gospel. And Jesus makes it clear that it's his disciples' job to make that gospel known if they're to make disciples. Second, I want you to notice Jesus' authority, Jesus' authority in verse eighteen. Jesus says that all authority is his on heaven and earth. This means that he's sending you out to to rescue lost souls under his authority. Not your own authority. Under his authority. Jesus sends you to rescue these lost souls that are already his. Essentially, you just need to go out and proclaim the gospel to them and the Lord will bring them to himself, right? I mean, don't don't worry so much about stumbling over words when you're proclaiming the gospel. Don't worry about like, well, I mean, was I convincing or wasn't I convincing? You need to be faithful to proclaim the gospel and God will use that to bring his sheep to his son. John 6, 35 says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who hears, or the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And how do they come? They come through the external call of the gospel, through us making the gospel known. Third, I want you to notice in verse 19 that Jesus says to them, go. He says to his disciples, go. Now, oftentimes a lot, a little or or too little or too much is made of this command to go yes it's true that missionaries are to go into foreign lands and to go to countries that are still closed and proclaim the gospel to the darker regions of the world and it's true that not every single one of us is called to be a mission missionary and that those missionaries need support and we stay on the backside and hold the rope, right? The analogy goes, or as they go into those dark places, or or we, we, we pray for them and we help finance them. But that doesn't mean that we don't go out and find those who need the gospel in our own community, right? We don't just sit around and wait for unbelievers to come across our path, although plenty do and we neglect them. You need to make a commitment to be an evangelist, to find those people who you have a relationship with that you can share the gospel with and do so. I mean, think about it. When was the last time somebody at your work or somebody at school or, or on your sports team that you, you know, and that, that guy doesn't know or that gal doesn't know the gospel and they, and they need the gospel. I mean, maybe you're not even thinking in those terms and you should be. Have you prayed about sharing the gospel with them, being the one to proclaim the good news to them? You need to be. You can't just wait passively for God to bring these people to you. Yes, pray for divine appointments. If you're looking for people to evangelize and you don't know who, ask the Lord and he will show you. There's plenty. Now, if it's the Christian's job to make disciples, and that necessitates proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, then we must know what to proclaim. We must know what to proclaim, and we must know how to. To proclaim it. So, for most of the, the rest of our time this morning, we're going to talk about our third point the message and the technique of evangelism. The message and technique of evangelism. I'll start with a, a little bit of an illustration. We've all seen the news. Right? Somebody, a newscaster, gets up on the news and, and gives us the news. Um, although, most of the time these days, we don't agree with what half, he, half of what he says. Um, we expect him to tell us the news um, or the weatherman, the weatherman. We'll pick on the weatherman a little bit, right? If the weatherman got up uh, on, on the news and didn't say a word, I mean, we, we wouldn't tune into him, would we? Or if all he did was get up there and say, today it's going to rain or today it's going to be sunny, now over to Steve for sports. I mean, we'd be like, that's it? I mean, why am I taking my time listening to this weatherman? I mean, we, we want in Texas, we want, I mean, we want to know, is it going to be freezing in the morning? Is it going to be 110 degrees in the afternoon? What clothes am I going to wear? If it rains, is it going to hail? I mean, it's 100 degrees outside, but what's the real feel, people? I need to know because I, how many shirts do I have to take because I'm going to sweat through half of them, right? We want details. It's the same when we're evangelizing. We need to give details. We expect that the weatherman knows the details of the weather. We're Christians. We need to know the details of the gospel. Right? It's not just to say, well, well, well God loves you and, and, and his son died for you. Check the block and, and walk away. Right? I mean, those things are true, but we need to engage with people and, and, and tell them the whole story. And I mean, that doesn't always happen in one setting. Sometimes it happens over multiple conversations, but we can't have the kind of mindset, well, well if I just you know, share, the, share the gospel and then check the block and, and say that it's done. No, you, you need to live the lifestyle of an evangelism or an evangelist. I mean, details like, like God's holiness and, and man's sin and the resurrection. I mean, these things need to be proclaimed and declared. So we're going to, to take some time looking at this message, and we're going to take some time looking at how to proclaim it. And I, and I first want to look at uh, the technique of proclaiming the gospel. And, and you might be, be thinking, well, if it's, real, it's real simple. I mean, I just proclaim the gospel. I mean, what technique do I need in order to proclaim the gospel? You said just proclaim the gospel. I, I th- and I think you'll understand as, as we move along, but this is really the technique that Scripture advocates for. And your elders here at Countryside have a... Have a a, a, a staunch commitment to the Word of God. And it comes through in the preaching and teaching where we open the Word of God and we preach from the Word of God. But another way that it comes through is through these tracks. What are these what are these, tracks, these gospel tracts filled with? Are they filled with fancy arguments about why God is the creator of all things or, or why Jesus was both God and man? No, they're not filled with Fancy arguments—they're simply filled with scripture because the elders here know that that's the catalyst that the the spirit uses to make dead man live—and and we'll look at that. And this also helps us to present a full gospel. You have learned it, memorized it. Perhaps some of you, right? You know the four categories: uh, God, man, Jesus, and the proper response to help you. So when you're in that moment of, of nervousness, you can return back to what you've learned and what you've memorized, and you can present the full gospel. Now, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter. Turn with me to 1 Peter. And here, I'll show you from Scripture why the elders are so committed to to not only preaching the word of God from the pulpit, but also, you know, producing these tracts so that you have them as resources to proclaim the gospel. In 1 in, in Peter, Peter teaches that the scriptures, as I said, are, are the means, or we can say the, the instrument or the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to make dead men live. Look at verse 23 with me. Verse 23 of chapter 1. I don't know if I said that. First Peter 1, uh, verse 23. Peter says, For you have been born again you've been born again. What does that mean? It means you've been spiritually, made spiritually alive. And how have you been made spiritually alive? Have you been made spiritually alive through, through fancy arguments? No. You've been made spiritually alive, not of the seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. The word of God is what God uses, what his spirit uses to make dead men live, to give them new spiritual life. James one eighteen says the same thing. You write that down. I'll read it to you, James one eighteen, In the exercise of his will, that's God's will, he brought us forth. What does that mean? That he gave us spiritual life. He made us spiritual life. How did he do it? By arguing and, and giving convincing proofs that God exists? No. By the word of truth. What is the word of truth? The word of truth is scripture. It's the gospel. So this track is filled with scripture and the gospel, because the elders are obedient to the word of God, because they recognize that it's only the word of God that's going to cause the dead men to live. Now, I mean, think about it in the sense of a, a medical doctor, right? A medical doctor, a patient comes to see him, and somebody you know, has a, an illness or, or is about to die or something. I mean, I'm being a little over the top. But, and he has the, the, the medicine that will cure him, right? But he's like, eh, you know, I want to try this new technique over here uh, to see if it works. <laughs> I mean, we'd be like, what are you doing? That's silliness. You know that this is going to work. Why, or this is what you should prescribe, why would you be going in another direction and using something else? It's as silly when we try to evangelize people without using the word of God, without using scripture. To, because scripture is what makes people born Again. And I want, you, I want you to have confidence. I want you to walk out of here with confidence in God's Word when you go to evangelize. Now, technically speaking, uh, what I'm advocating for is sometimes called, technically, the uh, presuppositional approach. Uh, so what does that presuppo- what is presuppositional approach uh, mean? And sometimes people will say a presuppositional approach to apologetics or to evangelism. I mean, I'm, evangelism just being when you're going on offense and you're proclaiming the gospel and apologetics being when you're on defense and you're defending God's truth. So what is this uh, a presuppositional approach? I mean, it's really what I just described in, in 1 Peter 1 and in James 1. It's a commitment to use God's word as the primary resource because you recognize that the power is not in you, the power is not in uh, your arguments uh, or, or, or your intellect but in God's word and the gospel. We need to start from God's word and reason from God's word and to God, or start with God and reason to God. We, we don't need to start with something else and reason to God. Start outside of God's word and reason to God. When you, when you forfeit God's word, I mean, some will say you need to start on, on neutral ground, right? Well, they don't, they don't believe in God, and, and they don't believe in the Bible, so I'm going to have to start over here on neutral ground in order to convince them that God exists and convince them that the Word of God is actually God's Word. You don't need to do that. When you, I mean, there's no, there's no neutral ground. You're giving up your sword. I mean, who, who here plays video games? Decent amount? Okay, well, for the rest of you, sorry unless you're actually going out into battle, right? I mean, you wouldn't go, you wouldn't play a video game and go out into whatever it is, whatever realm you're playing, right? Or a game you're playing and not take your weapon of choice. I mean, we're essentially, that's essentially what we're doing when we're talking to other people about God without using his word. And I mean, Christians do this, right? And and I think we've all been in that situation where we're, in that gospel conversation we're sharing god's news good news with with the the unbeliever and we we go to some different type of argument right we we start pointing to the fact that um god is the that, that when we look at everything and we look at all the systems around us uh, we look at the complexity of the human body we start pointing to the fact that i mean this there's no way that all this could could exist except for the fact that there was an intelligent designer and I mean, while that's all true, you're, you're giving up the gospel. That, that argument is not going to cause anyone to be born again. It might, it, might, it might get their attention. You could use it with Scripture, but you should not be relying upon it alone. Use the Bible as your authority. Let's see. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 2.25. 2 Timothy two. Twenty-five. Paul's writing Timothy here, his final letter to Timothy before he passes away, and he says to Timothy in verse 25, and I really want you to, to pay attention to the second half, but I'll read the whole verse. Paul says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. Did you catch that? I mean, there's two pretty awesome truths in there. Obviously, God is the one granting repentance. But do you see the other truth? I'll read it again. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. What, what comes first? Knowledge or repentance. Repentance comes first. Repentance becomes, comes before knowledge and leads to true knowledge. And yet sometimes we fall into that trap where we're trying to heap up arguments and evidence before the unbeliever instead of proclaiming the gospel to him and calling him to repent and believe. Essentially, when you do that, what are you doing? You're setting up the unbeliever as the judge. Right When you take all that evidence and give that evidence to the unbeliever, you're setting the unbeliever up and saying, hey, I'm giving you all this evidence and I want you to judge it and come to the right conclusion. And then they don't come to the right conclusion. And we're like, "Well, why didn't they come to the right conclusion? Because they're dead in their sin and because they need the gospel and they need to be called to repent and believe. The Old Testament tells us the same thing. You know this. Proverbs seven: the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. True knowledge and understanding doesn't come until one fears the Lord. And the fool here, in Proverbs 1-7, the fool isn't somebody who's uh, intellectually unsound. The fool is somebody who knows the truth and rejects it, who knows that there is a God and rejects Him, who doesn't turn to the the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we talked a bit about the technique. I want to talk, spend some time on the message and kind of apply this message or apply this technique uh, to the message, which we've already kind of been doing. Um, but, but let's go ahead and we'll use what the elders have given us and what you have memorized. We'll use this outline in the gospel tract to kind of head, go ahead and walk through the message of the gospel. First, we start with God. And and, and why is it that we start with God? We need to tell people who God is and what he's done, but but why do we start with God? Number one, we've already said we don't need to reason to God. We need to reason from God. Knowledge and understanding is only available because it's God's, because he's created it. And so we don't leave him out of the equation. But the gospel is also what? Is it man's message? Or is it God's message? It's God's message. And we're just mouthpieces proclaiming it. It's not our message. Right? And we need to make that clear to people. This is the message from your creator. The creator of all things to you. And you need to make that clear. Man is not the center of the universe, is he? No, he isn't. God is. And it brings glory when we start with him. 1 John 2:12 tells us that our sins have been forgiven why for his name's sake obviously we benefit but god saves us to bring himself glory and we need not shy from that now it's here that we often run into our first temptation right i mean somebody's like well i, I don't i don't believe in god and i don't believe in the bible and and what do we do We tend to take a few steps back. Well, okay, they don't believe in the Bible. They don't believe in God. I'm going to have to convince them that God exists. I'm going to have to convince them that the Bible really is God's word. But we've already mentioned, you you don't need to do that. Don't give up that ground. How does the Bible start? Does the Bible start with an apologetic that God exists? What does it say? Who knows Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, what? God, right? Right? he created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say, here's the evidence that God is real, although the heavens and the earth are evidence that God is real. It just states that he exists. And we need to use this to our advantage. And and, and don't don't misunderstand me, right? I'm I'm not saying that we just throw these truths in the unbeliever's face and you need to believe these and if you don't believe them, you're a fool. That's all true, but you need to lovingly explain these to people, lovingly tell people these truths, and, and don't give up ground. It's not open for debate. I mean, this is what God has said. Declare it. Turn with me to Romans 1, Romans chapter 1. Uh, you likely know where I'm going with this. Um, But you've heard it said before, Uh, Tom didn't coin it, but I don't know where, I don't remember where he got it from, maybe one of his favorite book covers or titles or something along those lines, but he says it often. God doesn't what? God doesn't believe in what? Atheists, right? God doesn't believe in atheists. And why is that? It's because God has clearly, obviously because he actually exists, but it's also because he has clearly revealed himself to all of mankind. Mankind doesn't need more intellectual proofs for God. They need to fear the Lord. Their problem isn't that they don't have enough information. Their problem is sin. And Roman, In Romans 1, Paul gives us that glimpse into the, the unbelieving heart. He gives us the glimpse into what our hearts used to, used to be like, how we used to act, or how some of you still act. Read with me verses, beginning in verse 18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, Of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. I remember the first time I truly understood this passage. I had uh, just become a believer, and I was in the army still, and I had been reading through and studying Romans, and I was on a flight from uh, Anchorage, Alaska, up to Fairbanks, and it's a short flight, uh, but on your way, you fly past Denali, the the tallest mountain in America. It's 20,000 feet, and I had been thinking about these things and studying them, and and, I, and it just occurred, occurred to me. I was meditating on him and I looked out the window and saw this mountain and I was like, that's it. I mean, that's what God is talking about. That, I mean, where did that thing come from? That came from the creator of the universe. It's beautiful. And there's no other explanation than that it's from God. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a, a staunch unbeliever, whether you're a, 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 a Buddhist or a, or a Hindu or, or so on and so forth. Intuitively, you know that God exists. And he exists through his general revelation. Three points in this text. Uh, you don't have to write them down. I'll move through them quickly. But the text says that it is evident within them. It's evident within them. What, what does that mean? It means it's written on their conscience. It's in their hearts. The law of God is written on their hearts. That's what Paul says in Romans two fourteen and 15. And if it's evident, then it doesn't take unusual effort to... Understand that. Second, the text not only says it's evident within them, but it's evident to them. This means that the information um, regarding God is, is not a secret, right? He has not keep it hidden. I mean, he's got mountains that are 20,000 feet tall, he's got changing seasons, all these things that make it clear that God is real and exists. Also, the text says that God has made his attributes, his power, and the order of all things clearly seen. The fact that he is, exists is, is not easily missed. If you miss it, you aren't missing it. You're suppressing the truth, right? You don't need to convince anybody that God exists. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, unrighteousness, the text says. Charles Hodge says of this text, God has never left himself without a witness among his rational creatures, both in reference to his own nature, his own works of creation, and in the human heart, These give sufficient light to render the impiety, immorality, and sinfulness of men inexcusable. So what does this mean for evangelism? It means we need to use this to our advantage, right? We use the word of God to proclaim the gospel. What happens? The heart is either convicted and starts to think about these things and realizes, yes, I am a sinner, or it's hardened. And we don't control the response of the heart. We know that, but it doesn't mean any less that we, don't, we, we proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the gospel and we let the word of God do its work, whether it's hardening or whether it's softening. So we proclaim this gospel and we start with God and we proclaim who he is and what he expects. God is, as we've been saying, the creator of the universe, the creator of all things, the creator of you and I. He owns all of these things and what does he expect? Not rhetorical. What does he expect? Matthew 5:48. You haven't memorized. Somebody tell me. What's he, what, what does he expect? Perfection. Thank you. He expects perfection. And it's important that we tell people this because a lot of times people think, well, you know, God is just that father-like figure who's going to forgive me, you know, no matter what I do. But he expects perfection. Why? Because he's holy and he can't expect anything less. He can't be in the presence of sin. But this also sets up the unbeliever to start realizing, well, if he expects perfection, I I know I don't have perfection. So immediately they're already thinking, if they're honest with themselves, I, I need to look outside of myself instead of inside of myself. Use texts like James 2.10. If you've broken one law, one commandment of God, you're guilty of breaking them all. Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. I also like using Ecclesiastes 7.20, although I think the the ESV translates it a little better. It says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes 7.20. And it's important to tell people that God doesn't grade on a curve, right? Because a lot of people will look left and right and say, well, you know, I'm better than that person over there. I haven't done all these really bad things that that guy's done. So God will take that into consideration. That's not true because he expects perfection. And the wages of our sin is eternal death and torment. Romans 6.23 and all those deeds that, that we think are righteous, what does Isaiah 64, 6 tell us they are? They are like filthy rags. That's true. Imagine if you went down to, I don't know where you would do this, but imagine you went to your local Porsche dealer, right? And you were like, yeah, I really want that one right there. That's the one I want. And the guy's like, all right, we'll get it ready for you. Um, how much do you want to put down today? Oh, no, no, sir, I'm going to pay in a fool today. Okay, well are you paying? Check, card, and you pull out your dirty underwear. Yeah, it's that ridiculous when you think you can perform righteous deeds before God. It's that ridiculous, and, but infinitely more, infinitely more. Titus 3.5 says that good works or intentions will not save anyone because God is the one who saves through his word, through regeneration and re- the washing of his spirit and through the proclamation of the gospel. And so you show your fellow man who God is. You show your fellow man where he stands before God, that he's guilty before God, and that he deserves eternal wrath. And then you give him the solution. And what, better yet, who is that solution? You've got to paint the whole picture for them, right? Because if you just give them the good news of Jesus Christ, I mean, they might not even realize that they need a Savior. And you have to make that clear to them and you proclaim to them the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Just like you make God known, like you you tell them who God is and, and what he expects, you tell them who Christ is and what Christ has done. Who's Christ? He's both God and man. He was born of a virgin and he wasn't born in sin and iniquity like you and I. And then as he grew older, he never sinned. Think about that. If you're here and you're I mean, obviously, you high schoolers, and then if you're under the age of 30, 33, right? Jesus has been your age and has faced every single temptation that you have. And even if you're older than that, he's faced those temptations as well. He's been sitting in your shoes, and yet he's never sinned. And why didn't he sin? It's because he accomplished perfect righteousness on your behalf so that you, he could credit it to your account through faith. The love of God doesn't stop there, does it? No, it doesn't. Then after living that perfect life, he goes and dies on the cross. He he hangs there for 3 agonizing hours. Fulfilling God's perfect will. He did not come to be served, but he came to serve. The prophet Isaiah says that it pleased God the Father to crush him for our iniquities and pierce him through for our transgressions. And then 3 days later he conquered the grave. And appeared to the disciples. He was resurrected. Paul says in Rome, or, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, after declaring the truth of the resurrection. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? And what's the only proper response to this? Uh, repentance, turning from your sin. You have to call people to repentance and faith, right? If you if you declare the good news of Jesus Christ, but you don't tell people how to respond. You're not, you're not giving them the whole, the whole message. You have to tell people how to respond. It doesn't mean that they're going to respond right then and there. It doesn't mean that you're ever going to see them respond. But you still have to call them to, re, to a response. Teach them what repentance is. It's a 180 degree turn from sin. And, and you can't just turn away from sin to nothing because what are you going to end up back in? Another sin. And, and your biggest problem, sin, is still not taken care of. You need to turn away from sin and turn to Jesus Christ. The only solution for your sin. And then you've declared the full gospel. Now, I hope that you've, through this, your confidence in the word of God has been renewed or restored, and it gives you confidence to go out and to proclaim the gospel to the world. But we don't control the response, do we? We don't. I don't have time to turn there, but I'll give you the illustration. Luke 8, if you want to read it this afternoon, it's the, the parable of the soils. And in that parable, Jesus talks about the fact that the soil is the hearers or the heart. And as you read that, you think, I mean, you, you think about your own heart. Or what kind of hearer am I? And then also, as you evangelize, you realize, I mean, he gives us four soils, four hearts, and how many take root and become and show fruit? Only one. And so you realize as an evangelist that you need to scatter seed broadly and widely but that you might not see as much fruit as you would expect. But nevertheless, you continue to spread that seed and you let it fall where it may and you be faithful to spread that seed. Now this morning, as, we've, as I've tried to build your confidence in the, in the Word of God Again, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't want you to think like, you know, I just, take pe- I just take this word of God, my sword, and I just bash people over the head with it. That's not what we're talking about. You need to be, to stand on the authority of God's word and you, and you need to, to use it in your evangelism, but you need to do so lovingly and you need to do so with prayer. And you need to yourself live a holy life because when you don't and you proclaim the gospel, you know, I mean, people are gonna call you out about it. Because they don't want their sin exposed. When you, when you don't live a holy life and, and you live a life of sin and then they're like, well, I mean, why would I do that? Because you, you say you do it, but then you live this way and I'm just going to keep living that way. So you know the importance of that. But if you're sitting here and you don't care about anything I've said and you have no desire to share the good news with anyone, you have, have had a hard time paying attention and you just, you just don't care, I mean, that's a good indicator that, well, you're not in Christ, and your heart is still under the wrath of God, and your life is not in Christ, and you're not safe from His judgment that will one day come. I'll I'll close with this final illustration. Think about it this way. I often like to use this in evangelism or or just when I'm talking to teenagers. I used it with the middle school, so I know none of you would do this, but if your parents, because you're high schoolers now, but if your parents told you to to clean up your room or to do a certain chore, and you were like, meh, I'll get to it eventually, and you might get away for a little while, and then eventually, right, your parents check, and, well, they didn't clean the room, they didn't do the chore, Um, what's gonna happen? You're gonna face the consequences, right? And so you might be safe for a little while, but you're eventually going to face the consequences if you keep putting it off. And so today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Use what you've learned. Declare it to others. Ask God to prayerfully help you in your endeavors to evangelize. And as you do, you will learn and you will be sanctified as you do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to... Declare the truth of evangelism. We, we confess to you, Lord, that we are uh, inadequate um, in our ability to, to make you known. Uh, but you have made yourself known in your word. And you give us all the tools we need in your word to proclaim your gospel. Help us to have confidence in your word and, the, and your spirit's work through your word. That it would save souls and it would cause dead men to live. Help us to apply this to our lives. Help us to be holy through the, the, the studying and the preaching and teaching of your word. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your word and your gospel. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.